All right, good morning. Welcome again to our scattered gathering today. Uh, I want to just take a moment and just say a particular word of thanks. Uh, my family and I were able to get away for <clears throat> a few days this past week and get some time, just a little bit of R&R out on the Sunshine Coast with some family, great time of rest and good relaxation, good family time, good worship. Um, so I just want to say uh, appreciation and thank you for that. Um, and excited to be back here now this morning and working and ministering uh, to our church family. So let's dig into this. Um, we're going to look now at a passage from God's Word, talk about what it means and why it matters and, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, whatever, if you turn to our passage today, Ephesians chapter 6, chapter 6, beginning at verse 5, we're going to read verses 5 through 9. And just to give us a bit of the context and help us understand the flow of Paul's thought, I'm going to jump back and give us a few verses before, back in chapter 5, and then we'll head on into chapter 6 in our passage for today. So beginning at verse 5 and verse 15, Paul says this, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We've heard a number of times here. Now, here's our passage today, chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would obey Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. Masters, do the same to them. That is, to your slaves. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let me take a moment and just commit this time to God in prayer, and then we'll dig into this together. Uh, Spirit of God, <clears throat> we, we trust that you have already been with us now in our gathering, and now I pray that particularly as we come to your word, would you, as I always ask, just open every heart, every mind, every ear to, to hear your word, to receive what you say, just break down every barrier to us, but God, more than that, would you change us by this word? May we be, as James said, not, not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Help us to apply what, what we see here to our lives today. God, accomplish the purpose that you want to accomplish in each one of us individually as well as corporately as your church. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, I have had the opportunity over the course of my life to serve in both the employee as well as the employer role in various jobs that I've had. My, my guess is you've participated in at least one, if not both of those roles in your own life as well. 
And depending on uh, how many different experiences, uh, different places that you've worked, different jobs you've had, like me, you've probably had a variety of different experiences uh, in those different roles, either with great bosses, you worked with great employees, or yeah, not so great bosses <laughs> or, or employees. Uh, the, the tendency with the first, when you've got a great boss, great employees over here, uh, we, we tend to just work really hard. In those circumstances, we tend to be way more gracious often in, in how we serve there. And we, just, we often just seem to go the extra mile in, in the way we serve. Whereas over here with the not-so-great bosses, not-so-great employees, um, the tendency over here can oftentimes be maybe to slack off more. Maybe you start to become more, more controlling in, in the way you lead and, and, and just generally give less effort than you would otherwise. But whichever role you've served in before, something that's generally true for both employee and employer, it's that both of them, both of those roles are governed by a higher authority, be that um, maybe labor codes, governing authorities, whatever it is, they're, they're governed by a higher authority, both of them, so that neither one can just act in any way they want. Neither one can just treat the other in any way they want. And what that does, the, the hope being is that it provides greater uh, protection for both. It provides, provides accountability for both. And hopefully it also provides the greatest opportunity for a healthy, productive working environment. So we are, are continuing in our teaching series this morning through the book of Ephesians, where over all these months we've just been looking at the incredible plan of God to, to unite all things in heaven and on earth to himself in Christ and all of what that means and all of what that looks like. And now here this morning, today in our passage, looking specifically this morning at what the employer and employee relationships, what those relationships are supposed to look like in God's united, redeemed body, the, the church that we call it. Namely, just seeing how is it that our new identity as reconciled people of God is to inform how we behave in those various roles. But when we come to a passage like this, there are at least two problems, two kind of barriers in our way that keep us from immediately just getting to what it is that Paul wants us to teach here. Uh, the first I'm going to address right here in our introduction, and the second I'll address within the body of the message. The first problem, very simply, strange to say it this way, but it has to do with the way we've been looking at the book of Ephesians. The way, the way we've been going through the book in, in smaller sections of verses, which is great, helps us to focus in on the depth of it. But what that can do, uh, unfortunately, when we come to a longer interconnected passage like we have here, uh, again, what we've been trying to show you is this morning here is what Paul said begins all the way back in verse 15 of chapter 5 and goes through to chapter 6 and verse 9. It's one kind of connected thought. We can actually, by taking these smaller sections, lose sight of the overall flow of what Paul's trying to teach, and, and in doing that, we can miss the full impact, the, the fullness of what it is that he is actually trying to teach us here. We can miss out on, on some of the intended meaning. So just very quickly, as we've been trying to do each week and keep us locked into that, let me just remind you now here again, what Paul says in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, our passage today is also connected to what Paul said all the way back in chapter 5 and verse 18, that do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. That's, that's what he's talking about all through here. And then what followed were Paul's instructions of what reconciled, Spirit-filled life is supposed to look like. And the one Spirit-filled behavior that we focused on, if you remember in particular, is this whole idea of mutual submission to one another that Paul talked about 
there in verse 21 of chapter 5. And of course, then after these past few weeks, we've been looking at what that mutual submission looks like between husbands and wives, then between children and their parents. And I point all that out simply to help you see that as Paul now addresses employees and employers, he is also still describing a spirit-filled life and what mutual submission looks like between those two roles. So, so hopefully that deals with the first problem, just helps us overcome that so we can get to, to understand this text properly and what Paul is trying to teach us here. But the second problem as you probably already likely picked up on, is highlighted by the way, you probably noticed, uh, I keep substituting the terms employee and employer for slaves and masters. And if you didn't notice it, that's, that's what I've been doing. Uh, you, you probably noticed that. And, and the very simple reason for doing that is because I believe Paul's instructions that he gives to spirit-filled slaves and masters in the church at Ephesus also have direct application to the roles of employee and employer today in our lives and in the life of God's redeemed people called the church today. I believe it's direct application. But, yeah, I get it. What, what that doesn't address at all is Paul's seemingly just unapologetic reference to slavery to begin with. And for a lot of us, myself included, particularly at this cultural moment that we find ourselves in, which is which is excellent, which is great. There's, there's so much we're learning and growing as it relates to our understanding of, of racial injustice and all these things. But particularly at this cultural moment, in order to get to where we want to, we need to address the question first of whether or not Paul here, and really the Bible in general, condones the practice of slavery. Is that what the Bible does? We need to get to that first before we can even hear what Paul wants to say to employees and employers. So I'm, I'm going to do my best to try and uh, help us get there. I'm going to try to I'm going to dedicate the entire first point of this message actually to dealing with the problem of slavery in the biblical texts. I'm going to just try to deal with that first and and if we can deal with it sufficiently at least, hopefully then we can get to talking about working for our true master and then mastery redefined. So again, we'll begin with the problem of slavery in the biblical text and then hopefully we get to working for our true master and mastery redefined. So if you closed your Bibles, closed your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open it again to our passage in Ephesians 6, beginning of verse 5. Follow along with me as Paul outlines what mutual submission for spirit-filled believers is supposed to look like in the workplace. And how understanding God as the ultimate governing authority over employee and employer shapes and redefines both of those roles. Okay, so let's deal first of all here, let's try to do this with the problem of slavery. The problem of slavery here that we find in this biblical text, and again, we just need to deal with this because for the simple reason that although, again, the principles that Paul outlines here in this passage, uh, they do, they apply so well to our understanding of employer and employer-employee relationships, you've got to deal with the fact Paul doesn't say employees obey your employers. It doesn't say workers obey your bosses. He says, slaves obey your earthly masters. That's, that's the word Paul used here. And for what I trust would be the vast majority of us, because Paul does not explicitly here condemn the practice of slavery in general 
Or tell slaves in particular to, to leave their masters. Or masters, you need to free your slaves because you're all part of a wicked, uh, dehumanizing institution. Because he doesn't do that, the Apostle Paul appears to be, by default, condoning the practice of slavery. Just like, yeah, that's what it seems like. Which, listen, over the course of history has led to at least three different ungodly responses from people who read this passage. As at least there's probably way more, but at least three come out of this. The first one is to, to read this passage and say, yes, Paul is condoning the practice of slavery, and he's right, and I agree with him. That's the first ungodly response, and, and as one commentator noted, you go back and read some of the sermons from pastors, particularly in the southern United States in the 1850s and 1860s, and they're using this exact, or I should say misusing, this exact passage along with other passages in the Bible to try to give biblical warrant to the practice of owning slaves, which, which is, is a complete abuse of biblical authority, uh, not to mention an action, if the, war, if the warnings of James chapter 3, verse 1 are correct, uh, an action for which they will be judged by God even more strictly. Second ungodly response, that's the first. The second ungodly response is this, is to read this and say, yes, Paul is condoning the practice of slavery. And because of that, well, we can know that really the Bible is, is actually just an outdated, it's a time-bound collection of writings that we cannot and really must not submit ourselves to in every way. The problem there is that that's a denial of biblical authority. Like, like if we're allowed to, from our cultural context, say, oh, well, we're going to pick and choose which parts of the Bible we obey and don't, just strictly based on our, our post-enlightenment place in history, that, that, that's a denial of the Bible's authority. And the third ungodly response, and it's a little bit more subtle, but happens very regularly, is that we would read this passage and say, hmm, well, uh, I, I don't actually know. I, I can't actually tell if Paul is uh, condoning the practice of slavery or not. And because I can't tell and or because I don't want to put in the work in order to find out, I'm actually just going to skip over that part. I would just kind of push that aside, put it under the rug as though it's not there. Which, in the end, is, is an is a abandonment of biblical integrity. The Bible can't stand on its own, then we shouldn't trust it at all. And if we're confused about something, it's, it's our, our duty as, as those who say we trust in this book to put in the time and effort to say, okay, let's figure this out. Who can I talk to? Who can I, what, what can I read? What can I research to find out? Is that what's going on here? So that we can be those who can uh, support a, a, a biblical integrity, saying this book is what we live our lives by. But in order to help us get to the answer, okay, let's, how do we get there? And does Paul condone the practice of slavery? Is that what he's doing here? And hopefully be able to answer that so we can get on to what Paul actually does want to teach us here in this passage. I think uh, we need to look at this passage just very quickly in three ways. We need to look at it comparatively, operationally, and contextually. We'll deal with these very quickly. First of all, comparatively, the first thing we need to understand when looking at this passage is that we cannot compare what we understand about something, for instance, like New World slavery in North America with the practice of slavery in the Roman era. We can't just 
compare them as though we're looking at one-to-one comparison here, as commentator Clinton Arnold notes. Uh, the practice of slavery during the Roman era, very different in, in many notable ways. First of all, that, that racial factors, he says, played no role in slavery. People weren't enslaved based on, on their race. In, in specifically, slaves, he said, came from virtually every race and every country in the Mediterranean region. Secondly, slaves in the Roman era could expect to be released by the time they were 30. Thirdly, although some slaves, yeah, they worked in agriculture and, and hard labor, others served as doctors, as teachers, as accountants, as overseers, even sea captains. And fourthly, there's lots of others, but another notable difference is that slaves in Roman era context were given education. They were trained in specialized skills. So if you know much about slavery in, in, in North America and that practice over the last 400 years, you, you know, okay, the, those aren't the same. Like Slaves are not treated the same way. So we can't just make a one-to-one comparison. All that to say, however, as, as Arnold rightly goes on to point out, that despite these comparative differences, this is in no way to suggest that any form of slavery is, is more humane than another. No. And or to say that slavery in any way is a morally justifiable economic system. It's not. No, the reality is in, in both of these contexts and both of these uh, ways of carrying out slavery that, that human beings were being bought and sold like animals. They were being punished indiscriminately and they were the ultimate victims of exploitation. That, that's true in both point here is just simply that we need to guard ourselves from drawing just a one-to-one comparison between the way we understand slavery in its North American context and the way Paul understood slavery in the first century. Next, operationally. Uh, the second thing we need to understand is how the church in Ephesus that Paul is writing to here uh, operated. How did the church operate? And I'll point this out just very quickly to say that exactly as we saw two weeks ago, maybe that surprised you to hear, uh, just as children were an expected, understood part of the, the, the church gathering so that when Paul wrote to the church, he expected there would be children in the congregation there who would hear what he wrote to them in the letter. So too were slaves. So too were slaves, which means Paul's not adding on a note here that they were to deliver to Christian slaves later after the church had finished gathering. No, Paul, he, he's writing directly to slaves and slave owners that he expected would be present in the gathered church where this letter would be written. Lastly, contextually. The, the, the third thing to understand is the context in which Paul's instruction to slaves and masters appears here specifically. And this is, oh man, this is exactly why it was so important, I thought, to go back and, and look at the overall flow of Paul's teaching beginning all the way back in chapter 5 and verse 18. Because, listen, when, when you understand in this immediate context what Paul is teaching the church in Ephesus about here in particular is what it means to be filled with the Spirit, that that's what he's talking about specifically, it then makes perfect sense why Paul makes no explicit comment about the morality or immorality of slavery. In the same way that it makes perfect sense why your favorite TV chef's failure to mention the ethical treatment of animals when he's teaching you how to debone a chicken doesn't mean that he endorses the unethical treatment of animals. No, because he's talking about deboning a chicken. No, instead, speaking into what was an understood reality of slavery across the known world at that time, the question Paul is seeking to answer here in particular is, hey, tomorrow... 
Like tomorrow when you wake up, if you're filled with the Spirit, how is that going to affect the way in which you deal with your master? That's what he's talking about here. As Tim Keller notes in his work on this passage, he says, Paul is not condoning slavery here. He's talking about how slaves are going to live their lives tomorrow. He's immediate, he's practical, and he's dealing with things here in particular from a Godward relationship point of view, which, listen, means Paul's not making social commentary, he's making spiritual commentary. Listen, though, even though, even though, as we're going to see in a moment, what Paul teaches uh, uh, slaves and masters here as well as elsewhere in the New Testament is undoubtedly, yes, working to undermine and dismantle the social practice of slavery at the same time. That's, that's exactly what he's doing, whether or not he's saying it explicitly here. Beyond this, as Clinton Arnold notes, although Paul assumes the presence of slavery, he gives absolutely no theological warrant or basis for it here. Notice that? You notice even how, how although Paul tells both spirit-filled children and slaves to obey... Paul describes obedience to parents as right. Remember he said, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. That is, this is something God has woven and designed into the very fabric and nature of human existence. But you see, he makes no such comment about slaves obeying their masters. That in itself is a a huge flashing sign saying, this is not God's created design and order. And the reason is because slavery is incompatible with God's created order. It's incompatible with it. As John Stott notes, the evil of slavery, quote, lies neither in the servitude it involves nor even the element of compulsion, but rather in the ownership by one human being of others, which degrades them into subhuman goods to be used, exploited, and traded, end quote. Something something that is completely antithetical antithetical to biblical concepts like all people being created equal in the image of their creator. That, that Thomas Jefferson and the writers of the Declaration of Independence didn't come up with that. that. That's the message of the Bible, that we are all created equal, regardless of race, regardless of socioeconomic status. We're all created equal in the image of God. Or, or just biblical concepts like the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Those things show us that the practice of slavery, of owning another human being, completely antithetical to the message of the Bible. And, and I'll just say it, whoever has or, or, or is using the Bible in order to try to condone or give warrant to the practice of slavery, they're, they're lying. They're lying. They, they are misusing and abusing the Bible in order to support a wicked and ungodly practice, and it's wrong. And, and, and God is going to judge that kind of behavior. So, okay. Hopefully that gives you enough rationale to see that Paul, no, he's not condoning the practice of slavery, or at least gives you enough rationale to allow us now to move on and look at least, or try to look at what Paul is actually trying to teach us here. I mean, the reality, honestly, at the end of the day is that Paul is speaking into social and cultural realities of that day and saying, look, whatever your circumstance in this present context, if the Spirit of God is living inside you, this is how you need to live and engage differently with people. He's saying the Spirit of God lives inside you. 
you, you can no longer live and operate with other people the same way you did, regardless of whatever context he's talking about here. And the first cultural reality that Paul speaks into in our passage today is to someone being in the position of a slave. That, that's the first cultural reality he's speaking into now. Here he's talked about husbands and wives, children and parents. Now he's speaking specifically to slaves. Or as we extend that forward into our present day context, if you'll follow me there, could also apply to anyone who is currently working underneath the authority of another person, be that a boss, a manager, board, whatever it is. So let's look here, first of all, at working for our true master. Working for our true master. So look again at what Paul writes, first of all, in verses 5 and following. Here specifically now to slaves. He says, verse 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. Now, there's, there's a number of different things that Paul addresses there in, in those verses, but what I want to focus on in particular is the way in which Paul says again and again in a variety of different ways that for the one presently serving as a slave under an earthly master, being redeemed and reconciled by the blood of Jesus, being, being made a part of God's family, being filled with the promised Holy Spirit, if those are true of you, that now radically transforms the nature of that relationship. That's what he's saying to slaves right now. This, this radically transforms the relationship because before, the way a slave performed their duties was ultimately really just nothing more than a means of survival. Right? That is like you did your job because you knew if you didn't, you would be punished, abused, or maybe even killed. They think about it as uh, that might be a powerfully motivating force to, to, to have you perform your duties. It provides no motivation for whatsoever as to how you perform them. So, I mean, sure, maybe you get up every morning, go out in the field, go, go to the kitchen, go to wherever you were serving, you did your work, but, but the enthusiasm, the efficiency with which you, you did your job, and, and more than that, the integrity, the integrity with which you worked when you knew that your boss or master was no longer looking would be largely untouched by that threatening motivation. As soon as the boss's eyes are no longer on me, I'm like, okay, chilling, taking, whatever it is. But you see, now, no, now it's got to be different. Now, Paul says, spirit-filled slaves that obey their earthly masters with sincerity of hearts and, and integrity. Once again, as we've seen in each of these relationships, not for their master's sake, not because their master is so worthy of that kind of service, but as though they were serving Christ himself because he is worthy of that kind of service. He's telling these slaves, in effect, although, yeah, you may still have an earthly master right now, that's not ultimately who you work for anymore. That's not who you work for anymore. He's saying, listen, Christian slaves ought to be the best, most honest, most hardworking slaves their earthly masters have. The reasoning behind that being really what Paul's been saying throughout the book of Ephesians. Namely, that we must walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We understand whatever our current place 
role or status in society that our actions, and any of these roles that he's been talking about, our actions are no longer a reflection of ourselves alone, but also of Christ. As you see in verse 8, more than just the responsibility of of living a spirit-filled life alone, Paul also reminds slaves of the reward promised for obedience and service to Christ as well. You see that? Look again at verse 8, which actually, if you think about it, that sounds very much like Paul's reminder of God's promise to children that we saw back in verse 3. Or even, it sounds a lot like Jesus' uh, words to his own disciples in Matthew 19, where he says this, Everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold. And will inherit eternal life, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Which listen, by the way, doesn't mean Jesus is telling us that, hey, listen, you should just sacrifice everything in service of me in, in this earthly life until I return or call you home so you can have a bigger pile of stuff. No, what, what God is saying is, is that the inheritance that you have in Jesus, what you have in, in a reconciled relationship with him is worth more than anything, any earthly relationship or possession could ever offer you. That's really what he's saying. Or as R.C. Sproul stated so well, quote, Paul would insist that being owned by Christ makes all other definitions of our personhood irrelevant. When you know that you're owned by Jesus, by your creator, by the one who loved you and gave himself for you, that makes any definition of personhood, anything anyone else would try to put on you irrelevant. Going, he goes on, by rendering ungrudging service to their true heavenly owner. Slaves can work not for their value in the marketplace, but for their value to the one who poured out his own life for them. Wow. Wow. And maybe you look at all that and you say, wow, yeah. Wow, I mean, that sounds like a really, really hard calling. Um, but okay, but what's that got to do with me today? Well, but don't you see? Don't you see it? This is exactly why these same principles apply to anyone and everyone who is working underneath the authority of a boss or a manager or whatever, because think about it. If Paul is saying these things here to slaves, if he's saying that to them, who, look, whose experience of work was infinitely more intense, infinitely harder and infinitely more dehumanizing. If he's writing this to them, then how much more should what Paul writes here apply to us today, living and working under profoundly easier circumstances? If they could listen to this and be obedient to it, how much more should you and I be able to do this in our profoundly easier circumstances? It should be way easier. Which, listen, that's not for a moment to suggest that that workplace discrimination or abuse is something we should just tolerate or look away from because of our commitment to Christ. No. But what it does mean is that whether you have the best boss or the worst boss, whether you feel like you've got the best job in the world or the worst one, as a Christian, as a reconciled child of God, you ought to be one of the best employees that your boss has. That the efficiency and the enthusiasm, along with the ethics and integrity with which you perform your duties, stands out to those in authority over you and becomes a part of the testimony of your faith in Christ or a supporting argument for the reality of your faith in Christ and what that means for someone to be a Christian in their organization. 
Paul is saying this is possible regardless of your circumstances, whatever it is, because for the spirit-filled employee, you're no longer performing the duties of your job for your boss or for the paycheck or trying to garner favor with other people. That's not why you do this anymore. No, no, no. Your, your eyes aren't, aren't, aren't fixed here on your employer or your paycheck anymore. They're fixed here on your true master. Our eyes are fixed on our, our true master, the one who said, come to me because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Our eyes are fixed on our true master, of whom St. Augustine said, whose, whose service is perfect freedom. Okay, so that's how understanding God is the ultimate governing authority over us, shapes and redefines the role of employee in the body of Christ. The last thing I want us to look at now is how Paul says the same thing applies and, and shapes and redefines the role of employer. So let's look lastly at mastery redefined. Mastery redefined. So if you look now at verse 9 of our passage, you see Paul also addresses masters who, again, he understood to be a part, a regular part of the gathered church that he's writing to here in Ephesus. Now, it might seem at first as that giving masters only a single verse when he gave four to uh, slaves might seem like he's going easy on masters, like maybe he doesn't want to rock the boat too much. It can seem like that, though, only until you notice that Paul actually applies everything he says to slaves to masters and then adds additional instruction as well. Saying this, looking at verse 9, Masters, do this same to them. Everything I just said, do the same to your slaves. And, here he adds on, stop your threatening. Cut out your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Now, no, it's not like Paul's telling masters, okay, now you need to start doing the work of a slave. Or, or saying, you know what, slaves no longer need to have any accountability for, for how they're acting. That, that, that's not what he's saying. But he's absolutely telling them the way in which they interact with their slaves now is to also be in exactly the same way, with sincerity of heart, with, with goodwill and integrity, exactly the way that he told slaves to be obedient to their earthly masters. He's saying, you, you do the exact same thing. But then again, you notice in the middle of verse 9, Paul also tells masters this additional teaching, and stop your threatening. Stop doing that. Stop. Meaning he's saying the way, as a spirit-filled master, the way you direct and, and lead those under your authority now is no longer to be through intimidation, threats of violence. You notice as you keep reading that, that the warrant Paul gives for that instruction to masters, he says, is that they too have a master. Look at that. In verse 9, both their master and yours, as in heaven, he's saying, he's saying hey, guess what? Masters, you're slaves too. Don't forget that. You're slaves too. And unlike you, 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 you have a master who, who sees everything, who sees all, and who shows no partiality. He makes no distinction between you and your slaves. And he's your master. Paul is actually even more explicit in 1 Corinthians 7 when he writes, He who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he called is a slave of Christ. So, so altogether what Paul is saying here, as R.C. Sproul notes, if masters can expect their Christian slaves to serve them willingly, slaves can expect from Christian masters to be treated the way Christ treats his own. 
And in light of all that, I want to go back for just a moment to the question of whether or not Paul is condoning slavery and, and, and the questioning why it is that Paul doesn't speak out against the practice itself explicitly. Because don't you see, like, isn't that exactly what he just did? Isn't that exactly what he just did? Leveling the playing field entirely between spirit-filled slaves and their masters as well as completely redefining the entire practice of slavery in this first century context? Like, yeah, I get it. We, we lose something of the, the force of what Paul has just wrote because of the historical distance between then and today. But, but, but whether it's husbands and wives or, 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 or a child's relationship to their father. Paul is just strongly, repeatedly, again and again, challenging and confronting all these cultural norms of the day throughout the flow of this passage, showing again and again how being reconciled by Jesus, by grace, through faith, radically transforms all these different relationships, including the practice of slavery. It transforms all of them to a completely new reality by the power of the gospel and the way that the Spirit's presence in us reshapes and transforms these things. I mean, in, in this context, these instructions would have been incomprehensible to them. What? But now, in Christ's redeemed body, the church, it's a whole new reality. We have to live a whole new way as Spirit-filled individuals. So, so for husbands, he, writing to an entirely patriarchal society, Paul says, since Christ is your bridegroom, husbands... Love your wives sacrificially like Christ loved you. Sacrifice your power and position like Christ did to love you. Uh, uh, for fathers and parents, Paul says, since God is your father, love your children in the same way your father in heaven loves you. And now to masters, Paul says, since you too have a master in heaven who makes no distinction whatsoever between you, treat your slaves in the same way that Christ treats you. And I hope you can see, for those of you who today, you serve as bosses, you serve as managers, CEOs, whatever it is today, I hope you can see that this is absolutely applicational for you as well. It means that as a Christian employer, you ought to be one of the best bosses your employees have ever had. It means you to treat your employees with sincerity of heart, with goodwill and with all integrity, to treat them as equals. Understanding that no matter what your status, no matter how big your office is and how many letters you have behind your name, in the eyes of, of your true master, you and, and those that you're in authority over are completely equal. It makes no distinction, shows no partiality between you. It's not impressed by your position. More than that even. Much more understanding that the way you manage those under your authority as a Christian employer in particular is also no longer a reflection of yourself alone, but also of your Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. I mentioned as we began this morning that... This is something Paul speaks of elsewhere in the New Testament as well in his, his other letters. But one of the most concentrated treatments of the way understanding that we all stand and serve equally under one master and the way that that radically redefines the slave-master relationship uh, along with the practice of slavery in general is actually found uh, in one of actually Paul's shortest New Testament letters that he wrote to a man named Philemon. And I'll close with this. 
if you're familiar with that letter, you know that Paul is writing to a wealthy Christian landowner and friend by the name of Philemon with regards to a runaway slave of his named Onesimus, who, who had come to faith apparently under Paul's ministry and his house arrest in Rome. But listen now, as Paul writes, first of all, to the way that Paul demonstrates as one in authority over Philemon as an apostle, the way that he demonstrates exactly the principle that we just looked at in particular about how a spirit-filled individual is to treat those under their authority, but also look at the way that he redefines in this letter both the slave and the master roles in light of their new gospel realities. And the way that he desires Philemon as a slave master to deal with his slave Onesimus in particular. Just read here, beginning at verse 8, Philemon. Paul says this, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would be glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a little while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. You see it? See how this is all, this beautiful picture of what this looks like in real time, with the understanding of God being master over both of them, over Philemon and Onesimus. And really, it's like Paul is almost speaking here in the voice of Christ, and in the way that as our master, he would say, because you owe me everything, how is it that you're going to serve those in, in, in your context? You see how Paul, first of all, can send Onesimus back to be obedient to his earthly master, with a sincere heart, rendering service with him, uh, to him with goodwill as to the Lord. <clears throat> so he can do that for Onesimus. But here he can also appeal to Philemon to receive Onesimus back, now no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother in the Lord. And ultimately, to free him. You see that? That's the clear implication. Paul's saying, I, I'm not trying to force you here, but very clearly he's saying, I want you to free Onesimus. Send him back here to serve alongside me in, in your stead. Because you're not here serving alongside me. Send him back. That's really what he's saying. So that he might return and serve alongside Paul. Understanding that they both are now servants of the same master in Christ. What a beautiful picture of what this looks like. A workplace relationship in the body of Christ. Now the gospel redefines everything. Now no, none of what Paul has written here in our passage today is dependent, of course, on both 
employee and employer both being Christians, both being part of the body of Christ. No, that's not the point. The call to each one of us as spirit-filled individuals, regardless of whether you serve as an employee or an employer, is to increasingly allow the understanding of your ultimate service to your Lord and Master Jesus Christ, to allow that over time to shape and redefine and transform everything about the way that you serve in either of those roles on a day-to-day basis. Whether you're an employee or an employee, that your understanding that we, we all serve under one Lord and Master. That shapes and redefines everything about the way you serve in those contexts, knowing as well that as you do that, you're also reflecting the nature and character of your master to all who see it as well. Amen.